Hello and welcome to Dialogue, the Diapoint podcast. I'm your host, Pam Durant. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode in our virtual expert series at Diapoint ME, the place for people touched by diabetes. I am Pamela Durant, the founder and managing director of Diapoint, and I have a very special guest with us today, um, Zaina Yunus, who is the clinical diabetes dietitian specialist at the Dubai Diabetes Center. She is joining us to talk to us about fad diets, such an important topic. If you've ever thought about going on a diet, or if you know someone that did, or even if you eat food, I think you will benefit from this discussion today. A little bit about Zaina before we begin. She received her um, Bachelor of Science in Biology and in Nutrition and Diabetics from the American University of Beirut. She then went on to pursue a master's degree in Nutrition and Dietetics, also at the American University of Beirut after which she began to work as a clinical researcher in the American University of Beirut Medical Center. There, she focused on patients dealing specifically with polycystic ovary syndrome. She also began lecturing in a reputable university in Beirut, educating undergraduate students about various topics in the field of nutrition and dietetics. So she has some very, very deep education and experience in this field. She currently works as a clinical diabetes dietitian specialist at the Dubai Diabetes Center, the DHA, Dubai Health Authority in Dubai in the United Arab Emirates. Her main focus is on pediatric and adolescent diabetes management, where her role is in the nutritional education and management of diabetes in school and at home. She also provides nutritional education to patients with gestational diabetes and to adult patients with type 1 and type 2 diabetes. So, Zaina, thank you so much for joining us today. We're all so very excited to listen to your presentation and discuss this important topic with you because I think for all of us, I'm speaking for myself, but even though I've studied a lot of health and wellness and lifestyle medicine and I manage my son's type 1 diabetes, there is still so much that I'm sure I can learn from you about fad diets and nutrition. So I will turn it over to you now to to, uh, share your knowledge with us. Thank you, Pam, for this great introduction. Hi, everyone. I'm so happy you're all here. And today our topic is going to be about fad diets. And as Pam said, I'm sure we've all been faced with one or two have heard someone or know someone who has undergone a fad diet. So today's session will be about talking generally about the most common uh, practiced fad diets today. And we're going to go a bit more into how we deal with this when it comes to patients with diabetes. Okay. Sorry, one sec. Okay. So first of all, the views in this presentation are my own. They don't reflect the official position uh, of DHA. Um, I am not in any uh, sponsored medical educational activities, and I don't plan to discuss any off-label use of any medication or device in this presentation. So I'm just going to give first a background about overweight and obesity. So it's defined as the abnormal or excessive fat accumulation that can have a negative uh, effect on health. And as we all know, it's the most important public health care issue worldwide. It's associated with a lot of um, morbidities such as diabetes and cardiovascular disease and mortality. And it poses a lot of healthcare costs um, today. So this is an extremely important topic that is continuously being researched and how we can um, reduce the the rates of obesity and overweight and the morbidities associated with it. And more specifically, obesity has been believed to account for 80 to 85% of the risk of developing type 2 diabetes. And research, uh, recent research has found that people who, are, who have obesity, they're up to 80 times more likely to develop type 2 diabetes than those people who are within the normal range of the body mass index. So this is extremely important that we, we target, that we, we deal with um, obesity and overweight so we can reduce the risk of uh, problems like type 2 diabetes. All right, so just a quick um, review on the prevalence of obesity in the Gulf countries. As you can see, Kuwait currently has the highest rate of obesity and more among females as compared to males. And this is followed by Saudi Arabia. And if you look at the United Arab Emirates, 42% of the female population is, uh, is obese as compared to 25% of the male population. And this is a pretty, pretty big number. So it's really, really important that we continue to try to tackle this and try to find ways to reduce this prevalence. So speaking of this, here we're going to go into 
perfect eating plans. Does a perfect eating plan actually exist? So with obesity being so prevalent and costing so much, this has opened the doors for the industry of fad diets and exercise programs to prevail. So in today's lifestyle, we have easy access to junk food, um, minimal activity. This makes weight loss become very challenging uh, for people to, 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 to go on with. And as well, it increases the susceptibility of people adopting fad diets, which claim to help in uh, fast weight loss with minimal effort. So what is a fad diet? Fad diet is any diet regimen that is promoted for weight loss and it does not form part of the standard dietetic-led weight management advice. So these diets, they promise quick results. They're usually temporary. They usually are a temporary change in the nutrition and they're very prevalent and popular in the field of weight management. So on average, every year, you have over 1,500 books published on fad diets. So people are willing to pay whatever it takes for a quick weight loss with minimal effort. So here are just some of the most common ones that we have today, like the Eat Right for Your Blood Type, the Dukin Diet, the South Beach Diet, the Keto Diet, among many, many others. Okay, now why are fad diets so popular? First of all, they avoid face-to-face -face contact. And for people who want to lose weight, this is actually a bit intimidating when it comes to having to sit with someone and talk about their weight face-to-face. -face. Also, these uh, diet, diets, they provide extensive support uh, through online forums, which encourages their uptake more easily. And this is why healthcare professionals, we have to understand the regimes that pa patients may be exposed to, so we can sit and discuss what are the risks and benefits associated with each one of these fad diets. So it's interesting how far back uh, fad diets were. So the first fad diet was by Lord Byron in 1820, and it was called the vinegar and water diet and included drinking water with apple cider vinegar. Um, this was followed 100 years later by the Lucky Strike cigarette diet. We have the Hollywood diet, which we're going to discuss a bit later on, the cabbage soup, etc. There was the Sleeping Beauty diet in the 70s, which consisted of sedating the patient to help them lose weight. Oh. So, so many different types. I mean, when you think about it now, but all of these things that are coming up just to help people lose weight the fastest way possible. So I'm going to talk about the grapefruit diet. This is classically known actually as the Hollywood diet. What it involves is um, drinking grapefruit juice or eating grapefruits with meals because of the claim that grapefruits have fat burning enzymes. So they help to burn fat. Of course, this is not scientifically backed up. The goal of this diet is quick weight loss. And the problem with this diet, it's, it's dangerous because it is really restrictive. It's low in calories and leads to deficiencies in vitamins and minerals. So this is not a diet that we encourage because the benefits are very minimal as compared to the risks associated with uptaking this diet. Second one is the juicing and detox diet. And I'm sure a lot of you have heard about this or have tried it maybe even. So when we juice, unfortunately, during juicing, um, it removes the skin and the insoluble fiber that we find in fruits and vegetables. So we don't really get the benefits that we would if we were having actual fruits and vegetables. And the weight loss from this type of diet is mainly due to the very low calorie content of these diets. And a lot of these diets also incorporate laxatives and some include saunas. So a lot of the weight that is lost is uh, water weight and fecal matter loss. And they're extremely restrictive with some of them allowing only 400 calories per day. And the problem with these restrictive diets is that they lead to an increase in the stress hormones, such as cortisol. And cortisol increases the appetite. It stimulates the appetite. So this leads us to have a rebound weight gain. So making this diet not really successful at all. And if it, if it involves regaining the weight, we really haven't done much, have we? Then we have the cabbage diet. This diet uh, includes basically you eat cabbage soup only for seven days. It's a single food diet. So uh, people who follow this diet tend to lose water weight and it may cause uh, gastrointestinal problems because of the large amount of cabbage like flatulence. And that's kind of uncomfortable in public. Um, it's also low in complex carbs, proteins, vitamins and minerals. And as well, once we stop this diet, once we go back to normal eating, we expect that there will be weight gain again. So also not very effective. And depending on the recipes, a lot of these um, cabbage soup recipes tend to be high in salt. So this poses an additional health concern if we're not watching out how we are preparing this recipe. So again, not much benefit, 
more um, risks associated with taking up this diet. Now we have the alkaline diet. So this, uh, the notion of this diet is based on the fact that if we replace acidic foods with alkaline foods, this will improve our health. Because the theory is that acid-forming foods such as red meat, they can tip our pH level out of balance and this can negatively affect our health. So what are some of the acidic foods like meats, dairies, grains, processed foods as well? These are sugars, these are usually emitted in this diet. In turn, we replace them with alkaline foods, such as fruits and vegetables, nuts and legumes. Now, it is very healthy when we're saying we're consuming more fruits, vegetables, more legumes, less meats, less processed food. So it does rid us of the bad food. However, our body is very efficient at keeping our pH levels where they need to be. So emitting these foods or replacing these foods won't really have an effect on our body, on our body pH in order to actually improve our health. Now we have the blood type diet. I'm sure maybe all of us have heard about this diet is you eat based on your blood type. So for example, if you're somebody of blood type A, you should be emitting meats, eating more uh, fruits and vegetables. Now this is healthy. I'm not saying it's not. However, we are emitting a lot of um, nutrients we get from meats and uh, protein-based foods. If you're a blood type O, on the contrary, they encourage that the person eats more meats, more red meat specifically. Um, unfortunately, there's no scientific proof that our blood type actually affects our weight depending on the blood type. So whatever blood type we are, we are restricting ourselves from other nutrients that other blood types um, can have. So again, no scientific evidence would not recommend this as an actual diet for weight loss. Now we have the famous high protein diets where mainly we have the most famous ones are the Atkins diet and the Dukin diet. So both of these are high protein and low in carbs. They both have four phases, but like they're, they're worked around differently. In the Atkins diet, they recommend 30 to 50% of total calories come from protein. Um, that's a bit too, that's a bit actually really high. As per the American Heart Association, the recommendation for protein should not exceed 35%. So the risks associated with following this diet in the long term is high cholesterol, kidney problems, osteoporosis, and kidney stones because of the high protein and fat content of this diet. Um, also, the Dukin diet eliminates a lot of healthy foods. And because of its very high protein content, we also have the same, almost same um, health concerns. Then we go to the ketogenic diet. So this is a high fat, moderate protein, low carbohydrate eating pattern. And um, in contrast to the Atkins diet, the Atkins diet is also a low carb eating pattern, but it gradually increases the carb uh, content of your meal as you go. In the keto diet, it's the opposite. The aim is to keep carbs at below 50 grams per day. So the aim is to keep the person in a state of ketosis. Uh, shifting our fuel, our primary source of fuel, which is usually glucose, it goes from glucose to ketones. So we're in ketosis and this lowers the insulin levels. Now, among patients with type 2 diabetes, this diet has actually, in research, has been shown to be beneficial because it does increase insulin sensitivity. However, the side effects with this diet are, are very tiresome. You have fatigue, palpitations. So not very optimistic about how far we can keep up this diet. And then we have the paleo diet. The paleo diet is based on the notions that um, human genes stopped evolving 10,000 years ago during the Stone Age. So our human genes are made like this food is, is what is appropriate for our genes today. Uh, it includes fresh vegetables, fruits, lean meats, eggs, seeds. It um, prohibits completely to have any cereals, legumes, and dairy. Now, a lot of trials have been done uh, about concerning the paleo diet to see what are the benefits of this diet. Most of them are short-term studies and there has been weight loss. There has been a reduction in waist circumference. Uh, pa patients have been found to have better glucose sensitivity and better lipid profiles. However, because they're short-term, uh, they're underpowered, so we cannot really depend on res re results as being conclusive. Also, another thing with the paleo diet, the foods that are included in this diet are very expensive. So this is actually impractical for many populations. And a lot of side effects such as weakness, diarrhea, and headaches have been reported with following this diet. So it doesn't really encourage us to, to bring it up, to, to follow it. 
And because it prohibits dairy products, so this diet tends to be low in calcium. So this can increase our risk of um, reduced bone density and increased risk of osteoporosis if it's taken up for for long periods uh, of time. And last but not least, intermittent fasting. So intermittent fasting isn't an eating pattern, uh, sorry, isn't a diet as much as it is uh, an eating pattern. So you have a number of fasting protocols. There are eating patterns that cycle between periods of fasting and periods of eating. Uh, Through intermittent fasting, we do have energy restriction, but it's not necessarily maintained on a a daily basis. So just a few of the common ones available today, because there are so many protocols that we can follow, one of which is the complete alternate day fasting, where you have uh, fasting days of complete 24-hour no food or beverage, and the other days are ad libitum. You can eat as much as you want. You have the modified fasting regimens, uh, the 5-2, I will discuss discuss it in a bit. We have the religious fasting like Ramadan. See, Ramadan is regarded as a type of intermittent fasting. So it's also included in the same uh, category. Now, the most common ones being taken up today are the following three. We have the 16-8 method, where you restrict your daily eating uh, timings to eight hours per day, and then you fast for 16 hours. So a person who follows this method can choose which eight hours they want to eat, which 16 hours they want to fast. You have the eat, stop, eat, and this is the uh, referred to as well as the complete alternate day fasting, where you fast for 24 hours, once or twice a week, and the other days you're eating regular food. And you have the 5-2 diet, where two days of the week, they should be non-consecutive, where we would consume 500 to 600 calories at the maximum per day, and you maintain a normal diet for the other five days of the week. Now, all of these diets, there's one thing we have to keep in mind, that the hours at worst that we can eat we should focus on a low carb diet because the rationale behind the intermittent fasting initially is we want to increase insulin sensitivity. We want to lower the secretion of insulin levels from the pancreas. So we focus on a high protein, high fiber diet. Uh, The hours that we're eating in should include uh, low calorie uh, beneficial foods, lots of vegetables, whole grain foods. So the hours we're eating, it's not whatever we want and as much as we want. It should also be uh, well planned. And actually, this is a diet that I have patients who come and they ask me about it. I don't recommend it for type 1 diabetes patients uh, just because they're insulin dependent. But type 2 patients can give it a try. It actually has been shown to be very beneficial in in, um, increasing insulin sensitivity. At the same time, what's really interesting, what I love about it, is that during the fasting hours, this gives time for our cells to repair. So it's also very good for our health if we do it right and if we're getting enough nutrition that we need during the day so we don't result in any uh, deficiencies. A quick question. Yeah. Of of those three ways to do the fasting, is there one that is preferred or better over the others? Now, the one that's uh, most likely to to have compliance is the sixteen eight. All right. Uh, the five two is a bit tough because I mean, if you're restricting to five hundred six hundred calories a day, you're more likely to feel hungry. It might be tedious. It might affect your social occasions. The eat stop eat method, I think, is the most tiring one because you're fasted completely for twenty four hours. So compliance mm-hmm. is a bit difficult. The sixteen eight method, uh, a lot of us do it without noticing we're actually doing it. So mm-hmm. when we eat dinner early you know, and we'd sleep, if we skip breakfast, for example, that you can easily reach 16 hours of fasting. So the one that is most taken up and most successful because of the compliance and being able to maintain it is a 16-8. And it's very close to the religious fast, which is um, people can take it up very easily once you get used to it. Uh, I would recommend the 16-8 because I feel this is the easiest one we can do. Mm-hmm. And we do still have great results. So what is the verdict? There is no one size fits all. We cannot apply one diet on everybody. Depends on what our treatment goals are. Each person has their own goals. So we have to take that into consideration. There is no ideal percentage that everybody should have from carbs, protein, and fat. What we do is we focus on, we individually assess the distribution of the, of the patient's plan in the, in the first place based on what their current eating patterns are, what are their preferences, what goals they want. Um, the more we adjust our daily 
patterns to a healthier way, the more likely we are to maintain versus changing our diet 180 degrees. Okay, so how about patients with diabetes? First and foremost, the first rule is there's no such thing as a diabetic diet. So if somebody is diagnosed with diabetes, there is no specific meal plan that is standardized that the patient has to follow. It's completely individualized. And again, the same rule of no size fits all. But regardless of what diet you choose, the key to all of these diets is that you practice calorie restriction. It all boils down to how many calories we're having per day. Now, we do have recommendations for diabetes patients that do not really go well with the fat diets, with most of the fat diets, because we have to work on what are the goals. So someone who has diabetes, our goals are to improve, first and foremost, their glycemic targets. We want to achieve uh, weight loss goals because a patient who has type 2 diabetes, if he's overweight and obese, we need to make sure that weight loss is in action. Uh, we, one of, another, a third goal is to improve cardiovascular risk factors, and we want to prevent or delay any diabetes-related complications. So to achieve glycemic targets, what we do is we assess the current intake of the patient, and then we guide this patient how to monitor their carb intake. So we optimize meal timings, their choices, we take into consideration any medications they're taking and any physical activity that they're doing. So again, individualized, no one size fits all. So the fat diets we're talking about before, we had the low carb, the high fat, the high protein. When it comes to the um, most preferred, most researched um, proportions of macronutrients we should have, in terms of our key strategy is to monitor carbs, whether we're doing carb counting, whether we're counting exchanges or by experience. So it differs between patients who have type 1 and who have type 2 diabetes. Those who have type 2 diabetes, we work on mostly to control, um, make sure they get adequate carbs and controlled carb distribution across all of their meals and their snacks. When it comes to a patient with type 1 diabetes, because they're insulin dependent, our primary aim is to match the meal insulin to their carb intake, and this is referred to as carbohydrate counting. We recommend and encourage that patients with diabetes, and not just patients with diabetes, everybody healthy with uh, with a comorbidity, to focus on fiber-rich foods such as whole grain foods, legumes, fresh fruits, and vegetables, because they slow the absorption of glucose. They also reduce the absorption of fats. They help to retain water, so we have softer stool and healthier bowel movements. And research has shown that they reduce the risk of colon cancer and heart disease. So as per the USDA, for type 1 and type 2 diabetes patients, we recommend 14 grams of fiber for every 1,000 kilocalorie uh, per day. Also, we focused on a notion of something called the glycemic index. So the glycemic index is a relative ranking of carbohydrates in foods according to their effect on the blood glucose. So fiber is uh, delays sugar absorption. We find fiber in whole wheat and oats, legumes, fruits, and vegetables. So if you look at the diagram here, on the right side, we have white bread and brown bread. Now, in terms of the carbohydrate content, one slice of brown bread is 15 grams of carbs, and one slice of white bread is 15 grams of carbs. But let's look at the effect that they have on the blood insulin levels. So the red is the white bread, and the yellow is the brown bread. So what you can see that with the white bread, you have a higher peak of sugar rise before it goes back down, whereas the brown bread has a slower rise. So brown bread has a lower glycemic index than white bread. By having a lower glycemic index, this slows the digestion, the absorption, and the metabolism of glucose. So in turn, it lowers the insulin secretion or insulin rise. So we have better insulin levels after having a low glycemic index food as compared to a high glycemic index food. So mainly fiber-rich foods tend to have lower glycemic index foods. So we do care about the area under the curve because this, the more that we reduce this area under the curve, the more improved insulin levels that we have. Okay, now in terms of protein for and have normal renal function, the recommendation as per the ADA is to consume between 15 and 20% of energy intake. Like we saw with some of the fat diets, some of them can go as high up as 35%. And that's a very high protein, which we don't really recommend for patients with diabetes. Now, it depends on the kidney function. Uh, somebody who has kidney disease will have different requirements for protein, but that's on another um, presentation, hopefully.
Okay, the fat and cholesterol, our aim with patients with diabetes is because are, they are at a greater risk of cardiovascular disease. So we focus a lot on limiting saturated fat to no more than 7% of the total calories. Trans fat, which comes from processed foods, um, fried foods, uh, hydrogenated foods, they should be at the minimum. Cholesterol levels should be below 200 milligrams per day. And this is, this is where it differs also between patients with diabetes and those without. So for a patient without diabetes, the target is to go below 300. But because patients with diabetes have a higher risk of cardiovascular disease, the limit is a bit more stricter. It's 200 milligrams per day. We recommend to consume at least two or more servings of fish per week. And sodium intake should be a maximum of 2,300 milligrams per day, which is equivalent to a teaspoon of salt. Okay. Also, it's not just what we eat, it's how we eat. And there are many tricks that we can uh, practice with ourselves that can help us eat less and have a more controlled diet. So first of all, like as a tip, I'm just going to give some tips here. Take time to chew your food. All right. When we chew slowly, the slow, slow eating increases the levels of two appetite-lowering hormones in the stomach. And these cause us to feel uh, satiated earlier. So when we are chewing slowly and these hormones are rising, we tend to get full faster. So this helps us eat less. So savor every bite. When you're eating, put your fork down between bites. This will help us by the end of the meal, we would have eaten less and felt full earlier on. Also, listen to your body. Unfortunately, our body cannot differentiate between hunger and thirst. So if it's not a snack time, if it's not a meal time, okay, and you feel like you want to eat, try the trick of having a bit of water. You might just have been thirsty and that feeling might go away. Also, it's very important to stop eating before we feel full. Once we actually feel full, we might have overdone it because the signal to go from the stomach to the brain to tell us we're full takes around 20 minutes. So when we're eating fast and we're eating a lot, by the time like we're still eating and the signal is on the way, by the time we reach that signal reaches our brain, we have already exceeded how much our body actually needs. So we should eat just enough to satisfy our hunger. Also, eat, eat often. Start our day with an early breakfast. Planning our meals, this helps us have better control over our total uh, daily intake and be more in control of how many calories if we're sticking to how much we need to maintain or to lose weight. Uh, eating mindfully, avoiding distraction while we're eating is very important. We should try our best not to eat in front of the TV, not to eat while we're driving or doing any activity, sitting on a table and eating, give all of the attention to our gastrointestinal system so digestion is healthier and more efficient. Okay, eat smaller portions as well. And a trick I like to do with my patients is because when we talk about um, quote unquote dieting or reducing calories, it's a bit, um, uh, it's very straining for the person to feel like I have to stop myself from eating as much as I want. So a trick I like to do is I encourage them to use a smaller plate. Eating protein at a breakfast meal will make us less hungry throughout the day. So we'll be eating less calories throughout the day. So focus on incorporating protein into breakfast. This is the way to help us eat less and aid in successful weight loss. At home, all of the tempting foods, I encourage all of my patients to throw them far away from reach. Because if, they're, if we have easy access to them, we're just going to keep nibbling and eating and this is going to affect our weight negatively. So keep them far away, making them hard to reach, which will discourage us from going out to reach them. Sleep on it. The amount of hours we sleep is extremely important because not getting enough sleep causes fluctuations in our hormones and these actually increase appetite. So minimum what we need is between seven to nine hours. And it's very important, not just how many hours we sleep, but also when we sleep them. So we should sleep them during the night and not during the day. So it also, it's very important when we sleep them so that we cannot affect our appetite in a negative way. All right. Also studies have shown that we eat if we're sitting in a well-lit place versus if we're sitting in a dark uh, environment. So always try to have your meals in a very well-lit environment, whether it's at a restaurant or at home, make sure you have bright lights, you will find yourself eating fewer calories. Um, when you're eating with friends, try to be entertaining, you will eat less because as I said before, for the message to reach our brain that we're full, this takes a bit of time. So if I'm sitting in a, with a group of friends and we're, uh, we're having dinner or having lunch, 
by entertaining, I will be eating less by the end of the meal because I would have given time for the messages to reach the brain that I'm full. And another tip is to start our meal with a soup or a salad. This will result in 20% fewer calories eaten during the meal because we would have filled our stomach up a bit before the main meal uh, comes around. And also it's very important we Food labels, first of us, they help us to make more informed choices uh, depending on what our target is, whether we're trying to reduce carbs, whether we're trying to increase fiber, whether we're trying to reduce fat intake. So here's an example of what a nutritional facts label looks like. So at the top, it shows you the serving size. Okay, Why is this important? Because everything that's in this label is, only, is in that amount that is mentioned in the serving size. So everything we see here is in one cup as according to this um, picture here. So in this product, we can see calories 250. This is 250 calories in that one cup, not in the whole container. Um, it shows us as well how many calories are from fats. So this helps us um, to um, assess whether or not this is a meal that's high in fat. We look at the total fat. We really care about how much is saturated and how much is trans fat. Like we said, these are the bad fats. So we want to try to limit them as much as we want if we're following a low fat diet. So these are the nutrients we should limit along with cholesterol and sodium. Total carbs, if somebody's carb counting, it's very important we know how much uh, carbs there are in the serving. If we are looking at increasing our fiber, we also look at the dietary fiber, how much sugar is in, in the food. So it's very important we know how to read this. This will help us make more informed food choices depending on what our goals are, what we're trying to uh, change in our diet. Okay, and last but not least, exercise. Let's use uh, electronics less, be le have a less sedentary lifestyle and be more active. And this is a quote that I absolutely love. I eat to live, to serve, and also it happens so to enjoy. But I do not eat for the sake of enjoyment by Mahatma Gandhi. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. This was so incredibly informative amazing i learned so much and i have questions but does anybody on the call have questions about the different diets or nutrients or or what was discussed because that was a lot of information all right so so one question that i had when we talked about not getting enough nutrients through a lot of the diets and different things like that um, which is you know, I think something that we can all probably subscribe to and agree with. And the, the example you gave was like, where we're cutting out dairy, then we may not get enough calcium. If we take a calcium supplement, is that enough? Or is that the same thing? Will it help? That's a very good question. Now, usually if we want to make this diet a bit more healthy, if a person insists on following the paleo diet, we would uh, suggest that yes, they take a calcium supplement. However, when it comes to emitting dairies, it's not, it's not just the calcium that we're concerned about. It's, it's having a complete nutrition. So this is why when you emit something completely from a diet plan, you're not only emitting one nutrient, you're emitting an, a lot of other vitamins, minerals, and protein. So we will have a lack from one area, which we can satisfy in terms of a supplement. However, this is how I feel. If I need to supplement myself with something, then there's something must be wrong. I need a diet that will give me exactly what my body needs for optimal health, for cell repair, and for um, making sure that my bones are healthy. So also, if I'm removing a lot of dairies, um, I'm removing a lot of protein as well, not only just the calcium. Uh, we're also affecting, now vitamin D is not, unless it's vitamin D fortified, so it also has a bit of an effect also on our vitamin D levels. Are those, are those foods good? I mean, I know there's a, a lot of people, myself included, that have low vitamin D in this part of the world. And a lot of the foods now we see are fortified with extra vitamin D. Is that, I mean, I, I, I'm sure it's been studied that it's okay to do that, but is that really a good way to get vitamin D or should we be going out in the sun more? Is it good to get it that way? Now, uh, unfortunately, food only gives us 10% of our vitamin D needs. So you find vit vitamin D is a fat-soluble vitamin. So we find it mainly in fatty foods. So you have the fatty fish, uh, you have the butter. These are very high uh, vitamin D foods. But however, still, our requirement of vitamin D cannot be satisfied just from food. We need to be exposed to the sun. And it's enough to expose just our hands for 15 minutes. 
all right, to get our vitamin D from the sun. Now, in our parts of the world, and a lot of parts of the world, uh, there is a very high prevalence of vitamin D deficiency, with about 80 to 85% of the population is vitamin D deficient. Now, what is the reason behind that? Do we have an issue in converting the vitamin D to its active form? Is there a problem with the enzymes? To be honest, um, the research isn't very clear why we have such a high prevalence, specifically where we live in a very sunny country. So we are exposed at least 15 minutes in the sun, even if it's just our hands or our face. So unfortunately, we cannot depend on diet for vitamin D intake. This is why we have fortification of vitamin D, just to increase the availability of vitamin D from food. Okay, great. We have a, a question from Christine. She's asking, what are good options for dinner for type ones? The main meal, and especially when their main meal of the day is lunch. Mm -hmm. So what would be some examples of ideal dinner? Okay. Now, ideally, breakfast, lunch, and dinner should be complete meals. All right. So we should have a source of protein, a source of carb and a source of healthy fats. So if the main meal is lunch, I'm assuming what she means is that she's having her majority of her calories at the lunch meal. So here's where we do the planning. If we've had higher percentage of calories at lunch, then we need to account for that by having a lower calorie dinner. So what I would suggest is we have a good source of healthy uh, pr protein. We could have, uh, for example, a chicken breast. We can have a grilled fish, maybe with the side of um, some rice, uh, um, steamed rice. We can even have uh, some brown toast with uh, cheese. As long as we have healthy fats, a carb source, and a healthy protein source that is not fried, the lower calories we go, we can play around with the fat content of the meal and reducing the portion, the quantity. Mm. And on the subject of protein, you had mentioned that it's recommended that no more than 35%, that was per day, was it? Yeah. 35% of your daily nutritional um, intake is protein. Mm -hmm. Does it matter if it's animal protein or plant-based protein? Now, the difference between animal protein and, uh, yes. and plant-based protein is the biological value. When it comes to plant proteins, uh, usually we need to combine to, co to cause a full amino acid chain. So uh, protein from animal sources are usually high biological value because they have the complete amino acid chain, which our body breaks down and uses. When it comes to the plant sources of protein, we need to combine because some amino acids are missing in others. So we do complementary pairing. Mm -hmm. uh, in terms, however, at the end of the day, the quantity per grams per day is what matters. So if I'm consuming, how much can I have in terms of chicken as compared to beans, for example? How much am I benefiting from the protein? Uh, preferable to have a combination of both. All right. Uh, focus more on plant-based complementing proteins just because of the fat content that we see in animal-based protein sources. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. I was really happy when you said that the blood type diets are not really studied and don't really mean anything because I'm in the category where you're supposed to eat a lot of meat and I oh, hate meat when, when they came out and that was so popular. And I thought, Oh no, what am I going to do? I didn't do it, but, um, and I'm, I'm still here. So yeah. scientific evidence behind it. I mean, if you're a blood type, Oh, I'm assuming since you have, yes, meat, yes. Yeah. So you're doing a lot of meat, this is going to increase your cholesterol levels. It's going to cause weight gain. I mean, I don't see the rationale behind this. Unfortunately, like I said, uh, because it's very, um, um, what's the word am I looking for? It's uh, people, if you, if you tell someone, I can ensure that you can lose weight super fast, you don't have to put on that much effort, just eat this, don't eat this, it encourages people to take them up. But once you try them out, you realize that, no, I mean, unfortunately, everything needs work. Nothing comes this easy and everything in life. So same thing when it comes to dieting. So to get to, main, to achieve long-term results, it's going to take a bit of time. So that's why what we do is we, we work around the eating patterns of the, of the patient because we want to make sure that any change they do can be sustained. So the more we can sustain the plan, the more likely we are to keep off the weight. Hmm. And in your experience, when you see people do fad diets and then they tend to lose a lot of weight quickly, and then we often hear that people will gain back more and then they tend to be heavier than they were before when they did the fad diet. Is that your experience or is that just kind of a myth? No, unfortunately, that is true. Now, the, the problem with following restrictive diets is that 
once we are so restrictive, we tend to lose muscle mass as well. We're not just reducing the fat level. So as we are losing weight in a very fast way, it's unfortunately much easier to lose muscle than it is to lose fat. So the more we lose muscle, which is our metabolic tissue, the lower our metabolism will get. So when we have rebound weight gain, we are gaining mainly fat. We're not gaining muscle. So the metabolism is slower, weight gain is faster, and it becomes much harder to re-lose the weight that you regained. So this is why these restrictive diets are not recommended because we are losing our metabolic tissue more and more the, more, the faster we lose weight. Whereas when we're putting it back on, we're putting it back on fat weight. So making it more challenging for future weight loss diets. Mm, interesting. And on, on fat diets, I love the, the slide with the, the history. Um, mm. And if, if you came in late and you missed that, please go back when we post the recording and just look at the history of fad diets. And it really puts it in a different perspective because we're always kind of living in the present of whatever the latest diet is. What is Beyonce eating? Beyonce, if you're listening, I love you, but you know, your ma maple syrup and red pepper and all of that stuff. I didn't do it. Um, I don't think it's for me, <laughs> but what is, was there anything in your research that showed that the first one you put up was Lord Byron found, you know, that you should drink vinegar. Was there anything in your research that came up for his reasoning? Why? And why did people start dieting in the first place? Like what was the, the reason? So I believe the vinegar issue is the same concept as the grapefruit in terms that because it's acidic there was the notion that it can help to burn fat. So everything, so this is why not just the grapefruit, not just the vinegar, uh, a, lot of, a lot of the diets also, some of them include having a lot of lemon because it's acidic. So the acidic concept meaning fat burning. So this is the notion behind these diets. Uh, unfortunately, like the vinegar diets caused a lot of problems in the people who took it up. Uh, so, and they learned this across time, <laughs> uh, when, when people were taking up these diets, same thing, for example, with the Atkins diet, when it was first taken up, uh, there is weight loss. However, the side effects with taking up the Atkins diet was very severe. So again, adjustments to these diets are being made with every new diet. So you will see now in the literature, it, they're based on the same concept with like a bit of a tweak with each one of them to make it its own original plan. Mm, okay. And on juicing, mm -hmm. I, is there a safe way to, to do it? I'm not necessarily thinking like juice fast, but are all juices bad? All right. Now, in terms of juicing, it depends if we're talking vegetables or fruits. When we're talking about fruit juicing, like I said, we remove, it removes the skin and the fiber that you find in fruits and vegetables. So a lot of the vitamins, minerals, and antioxidants that we benefit from in fruits and vegetables, we don't get that in the juice. And unfortunately, when we juice, we're just taking the sugar. So result is sugar spikes. So, and calories at the end of the day. Uh, I, I recommend that we do um, vegetable uh, juices. So this could be, but not as a diet, but just as an addition to increase our uptake of vegetables. So we could do like kale uh, juices with like cucumber and, you know, just grind whatever you like in terms of low calorie, uh, non-carb vegetables. It's actually beneficial. We take in water and we are increasing our vegetable intake, but not as a replacement for a meal. It could be as a snack. Yeah. Is there a difference between now what they have the slow rotating juicers? Does that help? Yeah, they do. I am, to be honest, I'm not quite sure, but I believe I read something about it that yes, it does include the pulp as well. It can. I have one actually, and I've been using it for years, but not as meal replacement. But I found that, and it's mostly vegetable based. If I have like whatever green vegetables and I'll put like some apples in there to give it flavor. But I find that I get less colds, you know, and I'm just probably eating healthier. Yeah. But I really don't know if if I'm better off because it's it's slow rotating. They're more expensive. I can tell yeah, you that. They are. Now the thing is, it doesn't mean that you've completely eliminated the vitamins and minerals. They're just lowered significantly, but they're not completely gone. So you still are getting some of the benefits that you would get from a fruit. I suggest this for people who cannot eat fruits, people who don't like to eat fruits. This would be their best second case scenario, if you want, just to incorporate a bit more fruits and vegetables into their diet. Mm. 
Okay. And then another, because we have a, a, quite a few parents on the call, I think that have children um, with type one diabetes. As a nutritionist, how do you feel about, and I, I'm sure that you see it and I feel that for a lot of us, the most challenging meal of the day is breakfast, especially when we're learning what to do, what works, what doesn't work. No two people with diabetes are alike. Um, And with kids, you know, especially as all countries have inherited the taste of sugary cereals and things like this, what is like a good breakfast and i'm sure it's not a sugary cereal what are alternatives that you would suggest to for parents to encourage their kids to eat okay so now the thing is that um we tend to have more insulin resistance in the morning compared to the rest of the day so once we give a lot of sugar in the morning this spikes up our insulin levels as well and it makes us eat more throughout the day because we don't get really full. So we need to try as much as possible to incorporate a bit of protein in breakfast. When it comes to children, yes, this is challenging. So breakfast cereals is an issue. Um, I don't tell anybody to omit or to completely forbid from having um, a cereal if they like. However, let's reduce it as much as possible. What I suggest is, for example, peanut butter and toast. Peanut butter is a very good source of fat. It has protein and we have the carbs from the bread. Um, we could also, for example, have granola, whole, whole grain uh, granola with some fresh fruits. We can color the plate, add some blueberries, some raspberries, some uh, strawberries. So the more colorful, the more uh, encouraging for the child it will be. Um, another example could be to have, uh, for example, um, um, like, uh, like, for example, oatmeal and milk is a good option as well. Uh, we can have some beans in the morning with some bread. That's a very good protein source. And it's a slow uh, absorbing uh, glucose, so it doesn't cause a peak in the sugar. And for anyone, if you want to encourage a child to take up, uh, to eat something you want them to eat, you need to be the example. So I really encourage parents to prepare their breakfast with their children to have to be role models for their children to encourage their uptake. So this will make it easier for the child to take it up. Also, what we could do is to encourage, for example, intake of fruits in the morning. We could do like, you know, I I love to do the plate of, you know, grapes as eyes and, you know, and a smile as, for example, you can put a carrot, uh, cucumber as ears. So uh, if you color the plate, you do, you know, shapes shapes and sizes. This will encourage the child to take up the, the fruits and vegetables that they need in the morning. Great. I think that is really good advice. And I'm happy to say now that my son's 12, even on the days where he may not have liked everything I put in front of him, eventually one day they'll pick it up. And if they see you do it and it's there and it's part of your routine, and of course you're not, you don't want to waste the food, but it's good to have it in front of them. Um, And, and cereals, I don't really do a lot of store, store store-bought ones if I can help it. Um, and I, for people on the call, granola, it's so easy to make your own granola 100%. and it makes your house smell amazing. That's the, you the benefit. Fruit. You can add nuts so you can make it. Oh, a yeah, really you can make it whatever. It can yeah. be a full meal, hundred percent. And as you said, you eat it. If he sees you eating it as well, it'll encourage him to eat it as well. So be, be our kids role models and also involve them in preparation. So he can help you do the granola at home. And this will encourage him to have it for breakfast more often. That's true. That's a good idea. Maybe I think I need to do that this weekend. (laughs) So we're almost at the top of the hour. Does anyone else have any other questions? Please do not be shy. Food is a important topic. And I know we all love it. And especially living in a place like the UAE where we're exposed to so many different cuisines and types of food. Um, and it's all very experimental, but great at the same time that we have access to so many wonderful things. So if no more questions right now, if you do think of any later, please let me know and I'll be happy to pass it on to Zaina or you can find her in the um, DHA Dubai Diabetes Clinic. And ah, this is a great question that just came up. What is a good time of day to have ice cream? At any time of day. <laughs> I love ice cream. Okay. So, so, so again, um, 
the earlier we eat these things, the better, because physiologically we burn the highest in the morning. And as the day goes by in the evening, our metabolism is the slowest. So any high calorie or high sugar food, better to have a bit earlier on. So we have time to digest it and not affect our, our weight or our health negatively. So I would say maybe uh, mid morning or like early afternoon, but not every day, you know, let's keep missing it. <laughs> Everything so, in moderation. What if you make your own ice cream? I am very pro doing our own ice creams at home uh, using fresh fruits. Uh, popsicles we can do at home. This is actually a very good way to increase our uptake of uh, fruits as well and water. So this would have, it's less than fat, less fat and less sugar as well. So we could do like strawberry sorbet. We could do like a watermelon uh, ice cream from at home, like a slush. So these are very good ways to have lower calorie snacks that have less of an effect on our sugar and on our weight in terms of calories as well. And would that have kind of a less impact if we wanted to have it as like a treat after dinner as well? You'll feel less guilty as well. Uh, okay. Definitely uh, less guilty. I like that. Okay. Yeah. Very good. Good. That's a great question. And so many people in the comments are saying, thank you so much, Zane. It was an excellent presentation. Very informative. So Thanks. we really appreciate your time. I cannot thank you enough. And I know, and I just want everyone to know that this is really special because Zaina is so busy. It took us a few weeks to actually find a date. Um, where she was available. So it's really special to have you here today. Thank you so much again for joining us and sharing your knowledge with us. I hope you'll come back at some other time and talk to us about something else. Well, there's endless things to talk about with food and nutrition. Um, so everyone have a good rest of the afternoon and take care. And I look forward to seeing you at our next call. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. Part of our mission at DiePoint is to support people with diabetes with our free resources and content. The medical care associated with diabetes can be extremely expensive and even out of reach for many. If you found this podcast helpful, useful, interesting, or inspirational, please go over to Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star review so that more people can hear about it. You can rate it or you can leave a review. And also don't forget to share it with your friends. We thank you so much for your support. This is a very simple way to support us and it can be very powerful to help other people find the information that they need. Have a wonderful day.